It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at The Stone. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and we're continuing today. And we've been saying that we can find our story in the story of the Israelites. The book of Exodus is a story about how God saved and rescued the Israelites out of their slavery and bondage to Egypt. And we've been saying that we can find our story in their story, that their story that, was, that happened thousands of years ago was written down for us, for you, for me, for our church as an example for us, as a parallel to our story, as we read and see how God saved the Israelites out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt, we see that's how we were saved. We see that's how God saved us from our slavery and bondage to sin and death. And the Israelites have just seen and experienced some of the greatest and most incredible things that they could ever see or experience, right? Think about the things that they have just seen and experienced. They saw the 10 plagues. They experienced the splitting of the Red Sea right in front of them, being able to walk across on dry land. But just a short time after seeing and experiencing all of this, just a short time, perhaps only weeks later, we find the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And that was what we saw last week. And we ask ourselves, how can this be? How can they do such a thing? As we read through the book of Exodus, we're so tempted to look at the Israelites and think, how can they forget the plagues? How can they forget walking across the Red Sea? And you find yourself thinking, man, if I was there, if God allowed me to walk across the Red Sea split before me, I would never doubt again. I would never forget again. From that moment on, I would never sin again, right? But we need to see that this too is our story. Seeing the Israelites so quickly forgetting, worshiping and bowing down to a golden calf, weeks after seeing such incredible things and experiencing God, this too is a parallel of how we quickly forget, how we so quickly doubt and fall back into sin. This too is our story because there's many of you in this room that could say in a very real way that God has parted the seas for you. You can look back and remember God doing astounding and astonishing things for you in order to save you, in order to protect you, in order to keep you. You can recall times when you've so tangibly experienced God's presence in your life, but today you find that your heart is a little cold and little callous, and in fact, it's been an awful long time since you've experienced anything of God's presence in your life. In other words, any genuine believer who has walked with Jesus for any length of time will tell you that they've been there. And there are times when you're so close to him, there's times when, you're, when he's so real, you say things like, I'll never doubt again. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that sin again, right? But then what happens? We doubt again, and we sin again, and that is the paradox of the Christian life, that you can experience the greatest, the most overwhelmingly beautiful reality in all the universe one moment, but then immediately doubt it the next. But then immediately doubt it the next. Anybody who's experienced 
God in a real way looks at the Israelites and says, that's me. That's me. That's absolutely me. Nobody who has ever genuinely come to know Jesus, has, has walked with them for any length of time, looks at the Israelites and says, I could never do that. How could they ever do that? Any genuine believer would look at the Israelites and say, that's me. That's absolutely me. And so we become so thankful of their story. And so we look at Exodus 33 today. We're going to see the answer to the question, well, is there a hope for such a people? Is there a hope for such a people like you and I who are so quick to forget, who so quickly doubt? Is there a hope for such a people like you and me that are so prone to wander away from this God? In Exodus 33, we're going to see Moses continue to intercede on behalf of God's people. He's not done interceding for them. God was angry at the Israelites for worshiping a golden calf, and he's about to destroy them. Right? But last week, we saw Moses intercede for them by clinging to God's character, by clinging to God's promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so after Moses' first attempt at interceding, God relents in his anger. He's not going to destroy them. And then God is going to make a fascinating offer to the Israelites. Exodus 33. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, and, but I will not go up among you. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's God's offer? I'll paraphrase it a little bit. He's saying, my holiness and your sinfulness cannot coexist. My holiness and your sinfulness cannot coexist. You're going to keep trampling upon my mercy. Right? And because I'm merciful, because I'm gracious, because I'm compassionate, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to forgive. But eventually, right, he's also a holy and righteous God. And therefore, my holiness, my righteousness will consume you. He says in verse 3, I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. But here is what I will do, he says. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. He says, I'm going to give you military success so that you could still go in and claim your land. He says, I'm going to give you economic success and give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. He says, I'm going to give you health and wealth and prosperity, everything you could ever want in this life. But, he says, but I will not go with you. He says, you could have everything, but you won't have my presence. The Hebrew word that's used is the word panaim. He's saying literally, my face will not go with you. He's saying, you won't have a relationship with me. He's saying, I won't dwell in the midst of you. He's saying, I'll give you everything, but you won't have me. And now the question is, is this the best that a people like us could hope for? 
Is this it? Is this the best that a people like us could hope for? We keep forgetting, we keep sinning, we keep doubting, but God is perfectly holy. So how can we dwell together? How can he be our God and we be his people? How can we be together? Should we just cut our losses and part ways? Maybe this is our best hope. And so I want to ask you a question. If God dangled this proposition in front of you, right? If God gave you this offer, what would be your response? If he were to say to you, I'll give you everything you ever dreamed of, I'll, I'll give you a happy marriage, I'll give you wonderful children, or I'll make you wonderfully single with no children, right? He says, you, you won't ever get sick, there'll be no cancer, you'll have a perfect body, you won't ever have to exercise, you can eat all the carbs you want, you won't get fat, I'll give you success in whatever you do so that you can have all the power, all the money, all the influence, all the control, I'll give you heaven on earth, but, but you can't have me. How would you respond? And remember, this is not a hypothetical deal. You can't say, well, God would never say that. He did say that. He did offer that to the Israelites, and if he offered it to you, how would you respond? I think an awful lot of people would say, deal, right? Deal. Because this is the type of religion that the average American desperately wants to have the health, the wealth, the peace, and the prosperity without all the confessing and repenting. Without all the shame and guilt that might come after sin and after disobedience, where Sunday mornings are for sleeping in, a world where the sun is still warm and the breeze is still cool, a world where we get to benefit from all the existence of God, but have none of the maintenance costs. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, he says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied? Would you take the deal? Would you take the deal? What do you think the Israelites did? Do you think they took the deal? Verse four. When the people heard this disastrous word, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God just said to them, look, here's what I'll do. I'll make you rich, I'll make you beautiful, I'll give you everything. You just can't have me. And verse four tells us, when the people heard this disastrous word, 
When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They heard this word that most people would say yes to in a heartbeat. They heard it as a disastrous word. If God came to you and said, you could have everything, but you can't have me, would you yell disaster? Would you interpret it as disaster? Would you respond like the Israelites? And isn't it a little surprising? Are you surprised that the Israelites would respond in this way, right? After seeing all the ways that they fail, all the ways that they doubt, are you surprised that they would respond in this way? Well, yes, at first, but then if you really think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Why? Why are the people so distressed? Because they really did experience God. Do you see? because they really did taste of God's presence. And for a people who have genuinely experienced God, the thought of God removing his presence from us seems like utter disaster. It's like when King David cried out, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, Christians have the potential to be the most miserable of creatures. Christians have the potential to be the most miserable of creatures. You might think unbelievers are more miserable because they don't know God, but that's not necessarily true. The Christian who is living in sin, the Christian who is cold and callous towards God for whatever reason, will always be more miserable than the non-Christian because non-Christians have never experienced God like you and I have. They've never experienced God come into their soul. They've never experienced reading God's word and it seeming like God wrote those words right there just for you, just for you in that moment. They never experienced that. They've never experienced the splendor of being forgiven. They've never experienced the freedom of being able to forgive. And because they've never experienced God's presence, they'll never interpret the thought of losing God's presence as disaster. They never will. The way that you can know you're a Christian, this is how you can know you're a Christian, even if you're in a dark place right now. Even if you're in a place of doubt right now. This is how you can know you're a Christian even if you've been running from God and it's been years since you've experienced God's presence in your life, is that when you try to go to one thing after another, you keep going back to the thing that used to give you a high and it doesn't anymore. You keep going back to the thing that used to make you happy, that used to give you a rush, that you used to find meaning in, and you just can't. And you wonder, what happened to them? What happened to these things? Well, nothing. Nothing happened to those things. Something happened to you. Something happened to you. You've changed. Even if it was years ago and you've been running from God ever since, God has come into your heart and he's changed you. It's like God has come into your heart and your heart has become greater now. It's stretched out now. And so the things that used to come into your heart to completely fill it so that you would be satisfied now doesn't even come close to filling it. And so... The fact is, until you repent and return back to God, until he's at the center of your life, you'll be more miserable. You'll be more miserable than even unbelievers. And to the Israelites' credit, they realize this and say they mourn and they take off their adornments and repent. When you take off your adornments, you're saying, this is the number one priority in my life. 
If you wake up in the middle of the night and your house is on fire, you're not going to say, well, I'm gonna go take a shower first and put on some clothes and put on makeup and necklace. No, you're out of there. What you're saying is I can't go on with life as usual. I don't have time to make myself presentable and be concerned about what other people are going to think of me. This is the thing that has to be addressed in my life right now. I can't go on otherwise. That's what you're saying. That's what the Israelites are doing. And so maybe you've been saying, you know, I know God and I, we're we're not right. I know that, but I'll get to it someday. Maybe you've been saying, well, I'm just in a really busy season right now, so I'll get to church, I'll get to Jesus, I'll get to Bible and prayer another day. Maybe you've been saying, I I know I need to have some more quiet times. You know, you've been saying this, for a while and you find yourself miserable and exhausted. You find yourself miserable and exhausted. But you know what? That's good news. That's good news. Because you being miserable and exhausted without God is a very good sign you're a believer. It's a very good sign you're a believer because a genuine Christian just can't be happy without God. If you run from God, and you're living the way that you want, and you're just happy and satisfied and content, that's a really good sign you never knew God in the first place, right? But if you're running from him and life is just miserable, that's a very good sign you're saved. Genuine believer just can't be happy without God. This was the cry of the Israelites, and this was the cry of Moses in verse 15. And he said to him, Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. The cry of the Christian is, God, if you don't go with us, nothing else matters. The Christian who has known and experienced God will always, will always eventually come to the conclusion that human life is meaningless without the glory presence of God. You might even be tempted. You might even be tempted at the notion of a heaven without God, right? You might even be tempted, but you won't ever accept it. It won't ever be good enough to you. Why? Because you've actually experienced him. Because you've actually come to know him. And so that's not where our hope is found. It's not the best that we could hope for. And we see a holy discontent in Moses here. We see a holy discontent in Moses here. He says, God, that offer is not good enough. He keeps interceding by saying, if you don't go, we don't go. And so here's the next thing that God offers them. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, God, heaven on earth is not good enough. Without you, it's no heaven at all. Unless you go, we don't go. And God says, okay, this very thing that you have asked, I will do. I will go with you. Well, that should be the end of the conversation, right? But it's not. Moses is going to keep interceding. He's going to say not good enough one more time. He's going to continue to display a holy discontent and ask for one more thing. And what is that? He says, please God, show me your glory. Please God, show me 
your glory. And so in essence, this is the conversation so far in Exodus 33. God says, you could have all my stuff, but you won't have me. And Moses says, not good enough unless you go, we don't go, God. And we come to a place where we could understand that. So then God says, okay, you could have all the stuff and me. God plus all the stuff. And Moses says, not good enough, God. Show me your glory. What's happening? He's saying, God, not all the stuff without you. That's not good enough. He says, God, not even you plus all the stuff. That's not good enough. He says, just you, God. Not all the stuff without you. Not you plus all the stuff. Just you, God. That's the cry of the believer. Now, what is this about? Why isn't Moses satisfied with God plus all the stuff? Why is he pushing it all the way to God himself, his glory? I think Moses is pushing it all the way to God showing us his glory because that's where our true hope is found. God being glorious and God showing us his glory is the only place of people like us who are so quick to forget, who are so quick to doubt, of people who are so quick to wander away can find hope. His glory is the only hope that we have in actually having a heart that has changed. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, what's wrong with wanting God plus all the stuff? We could see how wanting health and wealth and prosperity without God, right? We could see how that would be bad. But what's wrong with wanting God plus all the health and wealth and prosperity? There's a problem because if the desire of our heart is God plus something, there's a problem because if the true nature of the desire of our heart is God plus anything, what are we saying? We're saying at the very least, God is not enough, right? If the true desire of our heart is involved in God, but yes, but yes, plus something, we're saying at the very least, God is not enough. And whatever that something else is, it has the potential to become the object of our greatest desire. And so Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters, it says you will love the one and hate the other. He's saying our hearts were designed and created not to be captivated by two things, but one thing. Our hearts, and our hearts were designed and created to have a singular focus, a singular worship. Now, make no mistake, when God gives us health and wealth and prosperity, these are not bad things in and of themselves. But our hearts, it has such a tendency to become enamored with the gifts that God can give us that we forget the giver. God gives you something. It's so wonderful, right? God only gives good gifts to his children. And so when he gives you the gift that you've been longing, longing for, you say, this is it. I am finally happy. I am finally content and satisfied. You become so enamored with the gift that you what? You forget the one that has given it to you. Are you saying that money or a nice house is bad? No, I'm saying if your happiness depends on you having those things, it's bad. Are you saying wanting health for my kids and my family is bad? No, I'm saying if tragedy strikes your family and it makes you turn away from God, it makes you angry at God, you should consider. 
you should consider that perhaps maybe you weren't worshiping God for God, but you were worshiping God so that he would give you a healthy family. If there's something that is taken away from you, and so you get angry and turn away from God, if God doesn't give you something and therefore you turn and are angry, from, angry at God, you might perhaps consider you weren't really loving God at all. You weren't really worshiping God at all. You are worshiping the thing that God could give you. You might be asking, well, how is this offer different from the first one? It sounds like you're addressing, again, a people who would be happy to get rid of God if it means they could get all the stuff they would want in life. This is different because it's addressing a people who still want God, right? We don't want him gone altogether. We want God. We just don't want him at the center. This is the people that it's addressing, And this is where I've lived most of my Christian years. This is my daily struggle. This is my daily temptation. I don't wish that God would completely be absent from my life. I do want him. I just don't want every single thing in my life to revolve around him. I want him around and available. I just don't want him at the very center of my life taking up all the space. Certainly if my kid is sick, right? I want him there. But if everything's great and we're on vacation, I just want to take a week off from spiritual leadership. I just want to take a week off from leading Bible and prayer times. I don't want him there. Certainly if I'm preparing for a sermon, I want him there. But if it's Friday night and I'm just tired and I just want to enjoy a TV show and laugh along at the crude jokes, I don't want him there. It's not just when I want him and when I don't want him either. It's that I want to pick and choose what parts of him that I like. I remember in college when I would fail and I would sin and I would look at pornography and there was such shame and guilt. I didn't want God to be absent. I wanted him there. I wanted the compassionate and merciful, gracious God to be right there telling me he forgave me, that he loves me, that I'm still his. But a week later, when I would be tempted to look again, I would try my best to ignore the holy and righteous God that would tell me, don't do that again. That offends my character. That is an assault on me and the people that I love that I've created in my image. You see, I wanted the merciful God after the sin, but I didn't want anything of the righteous God before the sin. And so we desire God. We don't want him gone altogether, but we want a God that fits with our tastes and our desires. We want a God that will be there, but only when we want him to be. We want a God, we want God, but just parts of him, not all of him, so that we can live the way that we want, but still have some sense that God is with us and that he's for us. And so again, what's the hope for a people like us? A people who aren't just quick to forget and doubt, but a people who put boundaries around God and says, God, thus far and no further. God, you could have this in my life, but not this. A God that we define as we imagine him to be, as we want him to be, rather than a God as he truly is, as he reveals himself to be in his word. What's the hope? Our only hope is his glory. 
Our only hope is that our glorious God would show us his glory and that his glory would break through in such a way, right? We would see him as he truly is and his glory would break through our lives in such a way where we look at all the things that we desired and wanted and went after and think to ourselves, if I could have him, who cares about all this? that his glory would finally break through in our lives, we would see him as he truly is and we would think to ourselves, I tried to create for myself a God. I want a God who is this way and that way, but look at this God as he truly is. He's perfect. He's glorious. Why would I want to create for myself a different kind of God? God's glory is our only hope. And so in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. First of all, what is this glory? It's the Hebrew word kavod. It means weight, weight. To see the glory of God means to experience the weight of who he is. When we see God's glory, when the weight of him bears down upon you, you begin to say, this God is above my likes and dislikes. This God is above my likes and dislikes. The average person in Austin might say, I'd like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. I'd like to think of God as a God of love. I'd like to think of God as just a God of grace. He just loves everybody and accepts everybody, right? Or they might say, I'd like, I, I can't believe in a God who would. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I like to think of God like this or like that, but by definition, don't you see, that's not a glorious God. Why? Because that's the God you've made up. That's a God that exists in your brain because you just think he's that way. Not a God as he truly is. That's not a glorious God, a God that you've made up, God that you've imagined, God that you want. The best God you could create for yourself is not a glorious God. That's not a real God. He doesn't exist. That God can't save you. That God can't satisfy you. Only the real God can. When you experience God's glory, you begin to realize that he's not a God that you can construct or make up, but that he's a God who simply is, and you have to bow down. You begin to realize that it doesn't matter what I think about this God. It only matters what this God thinks of me. When you see God as he truly is, not as you, not as you not as him imagined him to be or what you wanted him to be, but as he reveals himself to be in God's word, it will melt away all your other desires for other things. It will melt away all your other desires to have a different kind of God because he's so glorious. What if you would come to a top of a bluff and you would see the ocean as far as you could see and you see the sparkly waves rushing in, breaking in one after another and the white noise is just drowning out all the noise of life and the setting sun and there's, there's, there's colors of red and orange and yellow that you've just never seen before. And you're just trying to soak it all in. You're trying to soak in the last slither of the sun as it's going down. And you're just looking at it, just looking at it for an hour. Why are you doing that? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you hoping that somebody will walk by and see you and think, wow, what a contemplative person? No, you're, you're saying, I'm not trying to accomplish anything. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just enjoying 
right? I'm just satisfied. This just fills me up. Experiencing the beauty is the ends, don't you see? You're not trying to use it. You're not trying to exchange it to get something else. When you see and experience the beauty of God's glory, you realize that he's the one you've been looking for all your life, right? All the things in this world, one thing after another, you've been going through, does this make me happy? Can I find meaning here? Will this make me content? And you wonder and you wonder. And maybe perhaps you finally get it. And what do you find? No, it doesn't make me happy. No, it doesn't make me content. You get over it, right? But when you see God's glory presence as he is, you see, oh, he's the one that I've been looking for all my life. That's why there's this insatiable desire in me to look for one thing after another because God has put such a desire in me that it will not be satisfied unless I see him as glorious as he is. And so God answers Moses, verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what we're seeing here is that God's glory, the fullness of God's glory is our only hope. But in Exodus 33, we see that we don't get the fullness. We get the back of God's glory. To get the back of God's glory means to get some lesser view of God's glory. Moses has to be shielded and protected from who God is. God as he is is our only hope. But God as he is will destroy us. And therefore, Moses has to be shielded and protected. What's going on? The essence of God's glory is the proclamation of who he is. That's what he says. I will pass by you and I will proclaim before you my name, right? Before I would read this text and I would wonder what Moses saw. Some bright light, something gleaming, something bright, something amazing, heavenly choir, oh, you know. I would think that was God's glory. But here it tells us the essence of God's glory is the proclamation of who he is. God's glory is the proclamation of his name. The Lord Yahweh is his name. And so in a very real way, you want to know God's glory? Here it is. The proclamation of all that he is. Not as we imagine him to be, not as we want him to be, but as he truly is, as he reveals himself to be. What he says is that he's a God who is completely compassionate and gracious and forgiving, right? And yet he will by no means clear the guilty. And yet no man can see my face and live. The essence of God's glory, the full weight and display of who he is, is that he is a God who is absolutely forgiving and he is a God who is absolutely punishing. He is a God who desires no one to perish and he's a God that demands every sin be punished. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? 
Exodus 33 is the back of God's glory. We don't know how it's all going to work out. We feel the tension and the conflict of who we are in light of who he is, right? How are we going to dwell together? How is he going to be our God and we be his people? His mercy, his grace, his compassion, that's great, right? But if he never punishes sin, if he always says, that's okay, I forgive you, he no longer is the God that he is he is righteous. He is holy. What is the solution? John 1.14 tells us that Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came. That the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us and what? And that we beheld his glory, it says. The word of God was made flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, that his glory didn't just pass by us, but it was shown to us, revealed to us in such a way that we could behold and hold on to his glory. You see, without Jesus, we can't fully see the glory of God. Without Jesus, we can't have the thing that is our hope. Moses only got to see the back of God's glory, but at the cross of Jesus, we see the front of God's glory. We see how it all comes together. At the cross, we see that he is a God who is absolutely gracious to offer forgiveness, right? And at the cross, we see that he is a God who is absolutely righteous to demand payment for sin. We see the mercy of God and the justice of God come together. No more conflict. No more tension, right? You would sin and you would think, well, God is forgiving. God is gracious. He'll forgive me, right? But then you fail again, and then you fail again, and then you fail again, and you wonder, eventually, will God run out of his patience? Eventually, will God run out of his grace? Eventually, will God display his holiness and righteousness and just consume me, right? But at the cross, we see that not only is God gracious and compassionate to forgive you now, but he's also just and righteous to forgive you now. Why? because Jesus paid for your sins. He's not such a terrible judge that he would demand no payment. Payment has to be made, but he's not such a terrible judge that he would demand double payment. Jesus paid for your sins and he says it is finished. And therefore it is just of God. It is righteous of God. It is the holy thing to do for God to save and forgive a people whose sins are already paid for. Do you see how it all comes together? Do you see how at the cross the fullness of God's glory is revealed in such a way that it shows us how can we, a people like us, dwell with a God like him? And so the next time when you feel the temptation to have a heaven without God, when you feel that temptation, man, if I could truly have all the things in this world that I could ever want, even if it's at the cost of me never experiencing God again, let your prayer be, God, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. The next time life doesn't go the way that you wanted, life doesn't go the way that you planned and you wish somehow that God was different, that God would be more accepting and embracing of your wants and desires, that God would be more lenient of the holiness that he would demand from you, let our prayer be, God, please, show me your glory. Let that be the prayer that we pray over and over and over again. God, please show me your glory. Let there be such a holy discontent in you, right? Such a holy discontent in you. As C.S. Lewis says, do not be so easily pleased. 
God's created you for eternity. God's given you a heart that can be satisfied only by him. Don't be so easily pleased. A world in which you could have everything you want without God, don't be so easily pleased. A God that you could create for yourself so that you could live the way that you want and still have some sense that he's with you and he's for you, don't be so easily pleased. Let there be a holy discontent in you that rises and says, God, only your glory will do. I have been created for your glory, and only your glory will do. Let's pray. So, Father, show us your glory. As much as, much as we can bear it, God, right now, show us your glory. Show us the fullness of who you are. Show us how gloriously perfect you are. And unless you show us your glory, Lord, all our desires for all the things, Lord, will not melt away. Unless you show us who you truly are and how glorious you truly are, our desire to keep creating a God for ourselves will not melt away. We need you. We need to see you as you truly are. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We pray that we would go to it daily and see your fullness of your glory displayed. And there, let our hearts be fully content and satisfied, not trying to get something else from it, Lord. But in the beauty of your presence and the beauty of the glory presence of who you are, let there be complete and absolute satisfaction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.